Welcome to City on the Edge, special quarantine series. Today we're going to be discussing another podcast that you might want to check out. It's called The Mesa. It is recorded by local journalist Tierna Amru Enos. On February 6th, 2009, a woman walking her dog on the west side of Albuquerque discovered a femur bone sticking up from the sandy earth. After she reported this to the police, APD set about excavating the area, resulting in a months-long dig that covered over 100 acres. In total, they found and identified the skeletal remains of 11 women who had gone missing in the years between 2000 and 2006. Many people speculate that this was the work of a single serial killer, although the police have never formally identified a suspect. We've never covered this case in detail at City on the Edge, mainly out of a desire to give it the time and attention it deserves and to do so in a way that doesn't minimize the victims. In February of this year, however, local journalist Tierna Anruinos launched the Mesa podcast, a series that focuses on the West Side crime side in a way that we never could, with interviews and investigations featuring family members of the victims, police officers who worked on and are still working on the case, as well as Tierna's own experiences as a member of the media during this time period covering the mass graves discovery. I spoke to Tierna about the podcast, as well as what drew her to covering the case in the first place, as well as how her investigations have changed her view of Albuquerque's most notorious crime scene. You have started the Mesa podcast, mm-hmm. I believe just this year, is that correct? So I launched it on February 6th, which was the anniversary of when they found the first bone. So I wonder if maybe you can set the stage for us with with what happened that day in 2009. A woman who was walking her dog on the west side of Albuquerque, which to kind of set the stage um, for people who either are not very familiar with Albuquerque or are not familiar with the Southwest at all. A mesa is like a long, flat landscape. It sort of stretches beyond like a valley. So we have on one side of the city, we have these big mountains, and then it kind of dips down into a valley, and then the valley just flattens out and goes Mm -hmm. forever till Arizona. That is a mesa. In New Mexico, in particular, mesas are, it can be a dumping ground because they're, it's, it's desert. It's often very desolate and there's nothing out there. And so you can dump things out there. You can dump illegal waste. You can dump animal carcasses and people do. You know, that's where people find those big cow skulls out there that everybody takes home for souvenirs or whatever. And um, you can also dump bodies as well. So that is what was being done between 2001 and 2006. Roughly, there were a number of uh, women who had gone missing from the streets of Albuquerque. And I want to make this really clear because this has been my intention through the whole thing, through investigating and through the podcast is I'm not interested in only referring to these women as prostitutes, which I think has primarily been done by most, not all, but most media in their coverage. Not going to deny that a lot of them have had history with prostitution. Not all of them, though. 
either. And so it would be a mistake to just refer to them all with the blanket statement of prostitutes because they were not all prostitutes. Mm -hmm. That's also not just all that they were. I would say that there were women who were going missing from the streets. Uh, there was one detective in particular who was really paying attention. Her name was Ida Lopez. While she may have been the first APD officer to come forward with it to the media, mm -hmm. and that is when Maggie Shepard did her interview um, for the now defunct Albuquerque Tribune. She probably took it the most seriously. There was a lot of cops who knew this, and that hasn't really come out before. Were they considered connected at that point, or was it just that there seemed they to be didn't an know. unusually number, high number? It was an, an unusually high number. They knew mm -hmm. that some of them maybe sort of knew each other, just uh, by virtue mm -hmm. of lifestyle, but a lot of them did not know each other. Some of the girls were young. There were two girls who were 15 years old in particular who had no connection to the majority of the women who had gone missing. Um, one girl in particular, she was just a cousin and had, had no record of prostitution, no record of drug arrest. I mean, she was 15. And the other 15-year-old, Solania Edwards, she wasn't even from Albuquerque, and she was from Oklahoma, and they have not really found any other connections to her and the rest mm -hmm. of the women as well. Tell me about how it was discovered they were all so, a single killer. We have yet to say anyone specifically willing to come out and say it's a mm -hmm. serial killer. No one has specifically said it's only one person or it's right. two people. Yeah, so the first bone was found um, in 2009, in February of 2009, and it kind of kicked picked off a gigantic dig out mm -hmm. on the west side mm -hmm. and this now becomes very public and it's in the media um, and I was working at a television station when this happened and it was crazy yeah. because we didn't really know how seriously they were taking that there were this many women missing. Mm -hmm. They did. So, you know, once they realized it was a human bone and then they found more, I think they had a much better idea of what they were looking at, that okay. mass grave out there could possibly mm -hmm. be. And the media did not. Right. You know, until they started unearthing, you know, one a week, two a week. It was roughly the equivalent of like 100 acres. Yeah. that they dug up. Um, it's an area that is still owned by KB Homes out there. Mm -hmm. It was slated for construction. Uh, at that time, 2008, 2009, places had had started getting ready for construction, but it, you know, the economy had uh, dropped and people weren't building, people weren't buying. And so that also is partially why, you know, some of these bones could have been dug up because a lot of that ground had been dug up, tamped down, mm -hmm. unearthed. The, dug, the graves were not that deep, but at the same time, would they have come up right then at that point? Would they have been sticking out of the dirt um, the way that right. she found them? Because it was a femur bone and it was sticking straight Straight up out oh, really? of the dirt. Yeah. Um, and it was an area that was pretty well trafficked for people walking their dogs, people running. I've been out there before and it's it's a walled in area. Like if it was going to be a subdivision um, at the time, there was like breaks in the wall so people could get through and walk oh. their dogs out there or go for a run or do whatever. You can't get in there now, obviously. Oh, really? Mm -mm. No, the wall's a bit higher, and if they catch you out there, they can, you know, fine you, and sure. they're trying to keep people out of that area, which is understandable. She she found it, and she called the cops, and um, it's kind of the rest is history, and they just started digging. 
mm-hmm. and um, found 11 women in total and an unborn fetus. What got you interested in this, uh, in this case? Well, I mean, you know, working in media at the time when it was happening and, and being involved in all of that and having to call a lot of the families and mm-hmm. try to set up interviews with them, working with the reporters who were out in the field, you know, and also being from New Mexico, it's, you know, working in it is one aspect of it and it's not something you ever forget. It's not the kind of thing that happens. If you're from here, it's also something that I don't think that anyone who's from here and doesn't know about the case and the fact that it has never been solved Mm -hmm. also is something that has always been in the back of my mind and really the back of anyone who works in media especially if they were here during that time it's always there you know that case you know how horrible it was and you know that they still have never found anybody now we were talking um, a few minutes before we started about the fact that that this has you know been covered by other podcasts. What what is it about your approach that that makes it worth having its own separate title uh, for? Typically, the way that it's been done in other podcasts, um, it's really more of an overview. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's kind of um, recapping what's already been done, and and that's really been the purpose. Like some of the other true crime podcasts, like I know the most popular one probably is True Crime Junkie. They mm-hmm. have they're huge and in that genre, and um, they kind of just take a few story, uh, new stories, cobble them together, and maybe do a little bit of research on their own, and then they talk about the case back and forth, and then that's it. So it's not really any investigating. It's not more than one episode. Max mm-hmm. really devoted to it, and it's really just taken what's already been done and just re-reporting it to mm-hmm. audience maybe that's never heard about the case or something like that. I think the way that mine is different is because I actually was working mm-hmm. on the case when this happened. So I have a lot more intimate knowledge of what it was like and the whole history of the case because it's been 11 years and I've mm-hmm. been working in media in Albuquerque for 11 years. Also, I'm not interested in just regurgitating what somebody else has already done. There's been a lot of really good work done by um, some reporters here locally. A lot of those things are very valid and, you know, I may use some of that, but I'm not really interested in just taking somebody else's work and just Mm re-reporting it. I'm more interested in doing my own work, my own interviews, looking at it from different perspectives, not just the perspective of the police spokesperson also, which tends to happen a lot in a lot of media stories. Like this is what the cops say. Okay. Well, Mm -hmm. what are the people on the street saying? What are the people who work with women on the street saying? What are women on the street saying? Mm -hmm. What are some of the other police officers, current and former saying who worked during that time about what was going on that media at the time was not privy to that didn't really have any knowledge of and does that have any bearing on the case now and then has it changed your perspective since you started working on the podcast specifically yeah yeah it has i have talked to a lot of people who either former journalists or former cops that have given me a lot of insight into what was going on in the department 
what knowledge of all of these women going missing was out there way before Ida Lopez ever went public with it. And that has changed my perspective a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not out there to bash cops. I think that there's a lot of good cops. I think there's a lot of good cops who care very much, who did care very much then. But I also think that's very important to note that for a very long time, it was quite well known that this many women were going missing and there wasn't really an alarm sounded Mm -hmm. until all of a sudden there's this bone and well, now you have to pay attention to it. I do believe if the women were not from the background or had not had the lifestyle choices that they had at the time, I think that it would have been taken a lot more seriously. In the episode where you interview Maggie Shepard, there's a quote from a police officer about the intersection of Central and Wyoming, which yeah. is uh, still to this day, I think, pretty notorious as, as a center for different kinds of crimes, especially mm-hmm. prostitution and drug trafficking. He says, uh, I wish we could we could nuke that intersection. And that's, yeah. is that indicative of kind of maybe how people were looking at it at that time? I don't know if all cops were looking at it, but I think if you are a you know, vice detective or if you're a beat cop and that's your area, I drive by that area all the time and it's a rougher neighborhood. Absolutely. I'll say that myself. But if, if that is some of the attitude that's going on, it is very indicative of how seriously you take something mm-hmm. uh, when you sort of can look at people in that light, right? Like it's not a bunch of Anglo housewives missing from the Northeast Heights at the end of the day. And we can say all we want of like, well, you know, but their choices and whatnot. Listen, I don't believe that anybody deserved to have what happened to those women happen. And then I don't care what their lifestyle choices were or what trouble they had been in. A lot of those women were mothers themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of those women had not necessarily been involved in that kind of life for very long, some longer than others. Either way, there's no justification for it, and I don't care what their background is, what their Mm -hmm. education was, what their addiction issues might have been. They didn't deserve for that to happen to them. I think that had it been anybody else, I do think that it would have been taken more seriously, definitely by the media. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you say a bunch of women of a certain age group from a certain part of town are going missing, that's going to catch a lot more attention than, you know, one newspaper reporter putting it on the front page saying, hey, there's these 17 women who have gone missing and nobody really thinks that is that serious. Now you've investigated the stories of the victims, the women who were who were found. Are there any stories that stood out to you specifically? So Monica Candelaria, that one has struck me the most. Um, she had two young daughters. Uh, she had graduated from high school. She was going to college. You know, she was always known as being really smart, really pretty, um, really well liked, very charismatic, very outgoing. And then she was in a really bad relationship and things were not going well. And it sounds like he was pretty abusive and um, they got involved in drugs. And honestly, before she went missing, she had only been involved um, in um, the drug lifestyle for about a year. That was it. So up until then, she had been clean. She had been sober. She was mom of two kids. And then in one year, 
her life completely takes a totally different turn mm -hmm. and family doesn't see her very often. Um, and then all of a sudden she's gone. That kind of thing to me is extremely sad. I mean, I think all of these stories are really sad, but um, that is one that stood out in particular. Another one, she was from a really small town outside of Los Lunas. I remember her from 2009 because I had a really long conversation with her dad on the phone because it was my job to set up interviews and mm -hmm. do research for reporters and then, you know, hand everything over so they could go out and do their story. I talked to him for a really long time. I remember just at the time how like heartbreaking his story was. Her brother had been murdered actually a few years before she had disappeared. He had gotten into a bar fight and was killed in Los Lunas. And they were ext extremely close. When he died, she kind of just went off the rails, stopped coming home, was running away all the time, kind of got involved in the wrong crowd, got involved more in drugs. And then she went missing and they never saw her again. And they had no idea really what happened. And so that to me is like heartbreaking that that yes. is not, and those were their only two children. So now mm -hmm. both of your children have been murdered. So it was just him and his wife that were living. The level also of poverty that he was explaining that their family had lived in and mm -hmm. long before this happened was just, I mean, New Mexico is not exactly the richest state, obviously, no. <laughs> but the level of poverty that he and his wife lived in and, and my reporter, you know, when she went out there at the time, I remember she came back and she was like, Oh my God, yeah. I've never been in a place like that before. And it's like, heartbreaking mm -hmm. um and now that both of their children are dead as well it was just you know the story of that family is is heartbreaking that story i think is probably one of the saddest stories that out of all of the women and and that is something that 11 years later i still remember maybe it, it calls attention to the fact that lots of yeah. people live in in this kind of situation with <laughs> so quickly turn around for you too. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, she was not involved and she was pretty young. I, you know, I think she was 17 when she went missing. She was pretty young, you know, and she was not involved in that. And then her brother dies and it was like the one thing that it took mm -hmm. to change her life. And then that then led to her death. Right. Yeah. One of the interviews that you have with a police officer, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Scott, Norris. Scott Norris. Yes, yeah. So he oversees all the cold cases uh, currently right. for APD, um, sex crimes and everything, yeah. And I certainly got the uh, sense from that interview that he was certainly not saying we should nuke any particular intersections of no. of Albuquerque. He seemed much, yeah. very sensitive and, and very yeah. uh, concerned. But he said something that kind of, made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Mm -hmm. He said at one point, we know there are six more victims on the Mesa. Mm -hmm. Tell me yeah. a little bit more about that. What, what, what so that's a whole nother section that really hasn't been talked about. I mean, there, it's definitely been mentioned if you talk to any cop, if you talk to the majority of reporters, um, everybody, well, of course, sure, there's more people out there, but nobody has really done an in-depth look at there are more women out there. It's not just another line at the end of your story to wrap it all up. It is not just 11 women. There are more women out there. And we're assuming that it's six. If we're going by the original 
17 that Ida named and that was well documented that they knew of, then that means there's six. But what if there's more? Right. Which is also a, a huge possibility. You know, I mean, this is a more transient population, harder to keep track of. What if there's women that you weren't keeping track of? What if there were women that didn't have ties to other women so nobody would have noticed if they had gone missing? Mm-hmm. Um, what if you have more Solania Edwards that are not from here, that don't have ties here and family and friends to report them missing? I mean, she was a runaway and she was 15. So no one in Albuquerque noticed when she was missing. She wasn't known here. And she was in foster care in Oklahoma. So I, I think it's possible that there's more than six. And yeah, absolutely. I, I, I expected him to admit that. Um, and I'm glad that he did because that, I mean, it would be ridiculous for him not to. Um, but I was, you know, I pushed him a little bit harder on that because I said, okay, so you know that there's more what are you doing to look for them? But also then let's be honest, as macabre as it might be, could a possible reason why you haven't found them is because they've already had a house built on top of them. I mean, that area since 2009 is so developed and that area is all owned by big development companies like KB and things like Mm -hmm. that anyway. They're not going to stop building. Because there might be bodies under there. It is extremely possible that, you know, there's a house built over them. And if that's the case, I, yeah. I assume that women on East Central are Mm -hmm. still dealing with violence and and disappearing. Is there, do you think that there's an irony that we only seem to pay attention when they all wind up buried in the same place? Absolutely. Now, I I do think that there's a few things that are different now than uh, during the 2000s, early 2000s. One thing in particular, there's a group called Safe Street. That group has arisen out of this. They are trying to do their best work to diligently keep track of women on the street. Obviously, they can't keep track of all of them. Um, That's not necessarily their job either, but it's an all-volunteer crew, and that's what they do. They are trying to keep tabs on women as much as possible. They also put out a um, monthly bad guy list where they take all the reports that they've gotten from the women themselves and try to put it into a sheet that they can put online and also hand out to all the women. They go out there every week, they hand out the bad guy list. You need to be watching out for this guy. He's in a truck. He looks like this. He's blah, blah, blah. That didn't exist before. Things like that. Also, I think because there is so much more attention paid on the police department now Mm -hmm. that there wasn't before. So I think if there is a number of women who are going missing now and they don't do anything about it for the same length of time, that kind of attention that would be brought onto the police department I don't think they can afford that kind of PR. So some things have changed um, and, for the better. Yeah, some things have changed for the better. I think that people are willing to sound the alarm a lot sooner. I think there's the other nonprofit groups that are looking out for these women that didn't exist before. Um, safe Street is trying to create a safe space for these women to come to. And, and like I talked to Lieutenant Norris about it is, okay, is pr- prostitution illegal? Yes. But at the same time, if you have someone who is a sex worker on the streets 
and she's raped or she has a friend who's raped or they know there's a guy out there who's hunting them or assaulting them physically or whatever and they, they feel like they can't come to the cops to say something about it because well you're going to now arrest me if i tell you how this happened so i can't come to you that doesn't help anything either and you know one of the things that he said was yes it's prostitution and illegal but it's a misdemeanor assault and rape is not and we realize we have to take that much more seriously and give these women a safe space or we will never be able to stop this kind of thing from happening to women out there. And so that's good. I'm glad that he said that because it's a huge problem. Um, if you're not taken seriously and you have no one to talk to, then that leaves free reign for someone to go out and do exactly what they did before because they know that nobody cares and nobody wants to listen to you. Right. So where can people find your podcast? Um, it is either on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, um, or you can find it um, anchor.fm slash the Mesa. Um, but really, it's anywhere you listen anywhere. to your podcasts. It's everywhere. Now, you've taken a, a bit of a, a pause I have. due to the pandemic, uh, yeah. making it difficult for you to do interviews. Uh, yeah. do, you have, do you have plans for... Uh, how that, another one? How that might yeah. evolve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I have another episode that's coming out this Sunday. Um, I, it's, uh, we're going to start looking at uh, some things that I've been wanting to look at for a long time um, beyond just the two persons of interest that have been uh, public for the last 11 years. And so we're going to mm -hmm. look at other possibilities um, and look at the culture of um, what was going on before and during the investigation and, and look at maybe why other possibilities have not been looked at, mm -hmm. at least publicly. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking some time and sure. for your kids for taking some time away from yeah. you as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, um, so really much. Thanks it. for having me on the show. Yeah. Great to talk to you again. That's our show for today. Thanks to Tierna Anroinos for chatting with me about her new podcast. And as always, thanks to you for listening. If you wish to help support the show with the equivalent of a price of a cup of coffee, or for that matter, a fancy dinner, you can do so at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash cityontheedge. Your donation helps us with the cost of audio hosting, better equipment, and access to resources like books and newspaper archives, in exchange for your help, you can have access to sweet swag like t-shirts and City on the Edge magnets, as well as early access to our episodes. In fact, an early version of this episode was available to our patrons almost immediately after my interview with Tierna concluded. Plus, you'll be doing us a solid, and we pledge to love you forever, even beyond the grave. So, thank you to our current patrons. That would be Adric, Amy, Ben, DK, Isaac, Jean-Yves Bart. Jen Panhorst, Jesse Crawford, Jim Robillard, John and Gio, Joshua Haland, Kelsey Tietchen, Lando Enchantment, Natasha Chisdes, Neil, Rachel Langer, and Sean. Uh, thank you guys so much, and well, we'll be uh, we'll be talking at you later. Until then, don't touch your face. <laughs>